we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm talking to Lydia Tong. Lydia is the veterinary pathologist at Taronga Zoo. If you've ever watched CSI, that's how you should picture Lydia's day job, except with animals instead of humans. Lydia has linked domestic violence and animal abuse, uncovered a greyhound killing scandal and is now on the road to ending the illegal wildlife trade. I'm really excited to be sitting down with Lydia today on this episode of Talking Australia. Today we're at Taronga Zoo on location with Lydia Tong. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, It's my pleasure. Now, Lydia, you're the vet pathologist here at Taronga. Explain to me what that is. Yeah, so I'm I'm one of the veterinarians in the hospital, but my area of Um, the specialty is in pathology, which is kind of like being the investigative vet on the team or, or a bit like being the zoo coroner is how I often explain it. So my job is to, uh, investigate and get to the bottom of, um, any animal deaths. And that might be animals that are, um, animals that live in in our zoo, but also can be all of the many, many uh, wildlife species that come in through our hospital that for rehabilitation. Um, And I'm also there to help with um, diagnosis of um, diseases or problems in animals that are, say, in care in the hospital or in the zoo. So if they have an unusual growth or skin disease or anything else that, or maybe a a bigger problem in in the population, like multiple animals having an issue, that's where I kind of jump in to help um, kind of tackle solving that problem. Mm. And I feel like coming from an outsider's perspective, you have one of those jobs that maybe vets sort of dream of. Um, (laughs) So I'm wondering, before you, you know, went into forensics and pathology and um, all of that, when was the first time you remember kind of thinking, Oh, I want to. I want animals to be, you know, my life. I want to spend my life around animals. Yeah, for me, um, it was not so much a moment. It was just always part of my existence. So I was born um, in North New Zealand, in Northland, um, and grew up on a on a sort of a, a small farm. Well, my parents weren't farmers, but um, they we had like fifteen acres, so always had few cattle around and dogs and cats and lambs and all sorts of things, like a bit of a, a real sort of farmyard existence. And I used to spend a lot of time as a kid on um, a farm of, of a couple who were like our aunts and uncles and and I used to go down and like help with the milking and, and sit and pick bugs off the cows and just weird stuff that um, that now kind of makes sense now that I'm a, a vet pathologist. But... But, yeah, no, it's something I think I was born with. Mm. And at what point did you think, I'm going to take this passion and I'm going to take it to university and, you know, mm. pursue it at a high level? Yeah, so I I started out um, when I was really little, thought I wanted to be an archaeologist. Like I love 
digging for treasure. Oh, and same. Yeah, so cool, huh? <laughs> um, weird bones, kind of dark stuff, I guess. And then I, I think maybe a little bit older when I, I it was when I realised I was um, really kind of loved the biological sciences and, of course, was so drawn to animals. So when I went to vet school, I I didn't know this is what I'd end up doing. Like, it, it makes sense now, retrospectively, or, or with the retrospective scope, as we like to say in the nerdy uh, pathological sciences. But um, I I thought I was going into vet school to be, a, you know, a, a sort of um, a, regular, a regular vet, a James Herriot-style vet. Um, that's what I saw, I guess. But it was kind of through my vet school career that I, I realised I was feeling this sort of tug toward what I call the, di- the dark side, the dark <laughs> side. Um, not right at the beginning. I was also having quite a nice time at university, so I wasn't in the first couple of years, like, always as focused maybe as I could have been. But... Um, but that kind of pulled together toward my later years and and I realised when we started doing, like I, I remember vividly doing, um, uh, we had one session where we had a did a post-mortem class with horses and that was really, you know, that's quite What was visceral. that like? Very visceral. It sounds, you know, silly. I mean, it is literally and figuratively. Um, but I just, there was something that connected with me with that in that, not that it was... Um, anything about the the gore. I mean, it's gory, but for me it was about seeing the kind of truth. Like that's what I love about pathology is that you actually get to the bottom of solving these really big problems, um, problems of what, what was happening with that animal or what's happening with animals in a population. So to actually get inside and, and see it and feel it um, and have an answer resonated with me a lot. Um and also I'm quite a messy person and pathology, you can get away with being quite messy. So so it kind of clicked a bit. But it was after that, that kind of, that was so my, I did six years of vet school and so that was like my fourth year. What I managed to then do is I realised I kind of wanted to connect my my love for wildlife with the pathology. So I contacted London Zoo um, and to ask if I could come and just do pathology placement because they're one of the, and you know, there's not many zoos around the world that have a pathologist and London Zoo is one of them. So I said, oh, look, I'm really interested in doing a placement, um, but I'd, I'd just like to come and do pathology. And they said, oh, like, we haven't been asked that before. Let us really? get back to you. Yeah, which I I'm... thought that would be really competitive. Well, so getting into – here at Taronga is this case as well for our vet students have to apply, apply like three years in advance to get a placement just to do that application. And um, London do for sure to go and do one of the routine um, vet school placements, you know, I would have had to have applied a couple of years before, but I kind of suddenly had this brainwave and it was about a year in advance, I think. But I, I, to this day, am amazed by that too, that that people hadn't thought to specifically ask for a pathology placement. But um, I'm darn pleased that I did that because it was quite pivotal for me. I went in and um, spent time. So they they were their um, pathologist, Ed Flack. And when I was there, um, very unfortunate, uh, sad for for the chimpanzees there. But one of their young um, male chimpanzees, Zephyr, was his name, he was a teenager and uh, appeared to be in peak health. But he just dropped dead one day. And so I was very much with, along with the pathologist, you know, thrown into this um, incredible experience. I, I can't explain like what it was like. Well, I just remember it vividly walking in to the postmortem room. He happened to be lying on his front. And if you look at there, like the back of a chimp in that context, like it's, it's like a man sitting there and like their legs are not so much so human, but just the shape of them, it was quite, uh, quite amazing. 
And what it turned out um, when the postmortem was finished was that he had um, had had a sudden cardiac death, so sudden death uh, due to heart disease. And his uh, when when we looked at the, the what we call the histology, so the microscopic um, slides from his heart. I say we. I was very much the student at that stage. Um, but when when that, that was looked at, it was shown that he had degenerative changes in his heart muscle. Um, and so for my little project, I think that happened quite early on, so I, I got given a little project to do when I was there. So I investigated all of the um, all of the deaths of chimpanzees in that in the zoo over the last, as far back as I could go, basically, which was a good 50-odd years. London Zoo has, like, amazing, underneath the vet hospital, it's got, like, these cavernous walkways. This is like a, a basement of dreams for me because it's sort of like <laughs> pots of, you know, a dolphin brain and then and boxes of old, like um, just old paperwork and um, just like secrets that I, I and I was and they were really happy. They were like, off you go. And I just went down and ferreted around in there. A bit like kind of almost like archaeology, not quite, but but kind of like digging around. And then also the so it's the Zoological Society of London and they have this amazing old library where all of their older, older records are. So I could go quite far back um, and look at what the previous chimps had died from. And what was really neat was to be able to show, actually, there's been quite a high incidence of heart disease in this family, um, in the group, and um, which actually, by the way, is quite is understood now to be quite normal for captive chimps, not wild chimps, but captive chimps do have a higher degree of heart disease. But there was also, when we looked at the family tree, I actually made up a family tree. I've got a sister who's amazing at genealogy, so in at the software, so we made up a family tree and found that Zephyr's half-brother, Wally, I think his name was, had also died of a very similar heart condition a number of years earlier. Um, and then that also their family tree in particular had had seemed to have a particularly high kind of incidence of the stuff and and what happens and we we see it too you know in, in, in any zoo when you're dealing with cases over a very long time it can be hard to see those patterns unless someone specifically goes back to look at them so it was a really rewarding project for me because I could kind of do something a bit useful you're not used to being that useful as a student and then after that we we had involved as a, a, a woman um, professor Mary Shepherd who's based in London she's a uh, heart pathologist so just hearts in just humans so she knows her game very well and she re-reviewed and and looked at Zephyr's heart and said right this is almost exactly like a condition that humans get called ARVC for anyone who's interested it's arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy it's a bit of a mouthful that's a heart condition. So when, when sports people like drop dead in the, sometimes you know, get famous footballers or, or marathon runners and people who are otherwise completely healthy and usually quite young kind of drop dead, that's one of those conditions. And it looked exactly, almost exactly the same in Zephyr. And in humans, it's thought to be multifactorial, but it's definitely got an inherited component. So we think that we're seeing a inherited disease in the chimp family. So really fascinating stuff and so you can imagine so that that kind of whole investigation and writing up those cases took a year or two but I was just like this is souls like this is my future I just loved it yes yeah, so the investigation kind of just that that whole process just ignited that passion immediately oh yeah absolutely yeah and then when did you come to Australia and when did you kind of start doing those type of veterinary investigations here yeah so I, I graduated from vet school in 2009. So gosh, 10 years. 
and then I worked as a regular vet for like two years and, and, and or a little bit under. And then I took this six month trip where I, um, it's pretty, it sounds weird. It was, it was amazing. Six month trip sailing the Pacific with the US Navy. It's basically the US military preparing for um, if there's say another big tsunami event or other large scale kind of humanitarian um, disasters where there needs to be a response. So they're kind of training for that. And then um, what they do is that they engage, they engage multiple other military, so Australian Air Force and Army. New Zealand Navy was involved. There was some Canadian Air Force and some Singaporean military. So they're practising kind of like a multi-national uh, response and then they also get some NGOs involved, again, because that's kind of the real world. So um, and the, most of the, the trip is, is focused, of course, on, on, on human um, kind of human welfare and around bringing human uh, medical care, so medical, uh, surgical, dental stuff, um, some construction work. So actually the Australian Army, um, so diggers go out and do construction projects alongside them and um, and then there's a, a relatively small but, you know, wonderful, obviously, veterinary team. So the, the, the American Navy doesn't officially have vets, veterinarians. I do believe that they do have dolphins in the Australian Navy, um, sort of like undercover dolphins that can detect mines and that sort of thing. I've read about this. This mm. is insane. Yeah, but the officially, as far as I understand, officially there's not a US Navy veterinary corps. I'm so, just trying to take in the fact that you worked as a vet for the US Navy. Like I'm just <laughs> now taking that all in. Yeah, sorry, I was just not that. Um, it, was, it was a good, it was like a, a very rose rose-tinted life as a as a military vet. We did have to get up at like 4am, which for me is not easy. And I slept in like, I was in um, the um, the enlisted quarters and it was one of the US Navy's oldest ships we were on. In fact, it was retired, I think, immediately after um, the trip, but they were bunks like four in a row. So it was really like, you know, the coffin bunks. But um, oh, it was just, it was quite amazing. And um, Actually, what the cool thing, interesting thing about that ship is that up until that point, it had always been a stag ship, so it had only ever had men on it. So we had to come on board as women and be like, <laughs> hey, guys. And so they had to sort of just make it work with having girls' quarters and things. But we could see the boys down the stairs like the um, and up the stairs, and so... You know, it would be like, ooh, and they, the boys would be downstairs playing their guitars at night and, all the, you know, girls were up the stairs. But it was all, we had to behave very much in a strictly um, military fashion, you know. And we had in our in our bunk room, it was a good mixture of um, Australian, Canadian and American um, forces and a couple of us NGO types. Um, but we were very much kept in line by the American Army um, sergeant. So I can imagine. That. Oh yeah, you don't, <laughs> you do not miss. So I had originally planned I would go back to England. So I was practicing in London before I left. I'd originally planned to go back to England, but and I, but I didn't have a job to go back to. I'd left my job, and then um, it was high after many months at sea in the Pacific in the glorious sunshine and just the space and the like just amazing part of the world that it is, I just sort of increasingly realised I couldn't go back to London. I do have a lot of affection for London, but it's not me, I don't think. And um, so, uh, and, and being originally from New Zealand, I also had, um, by that point, half of my family were in Australia. Um, so I kind of went, you know what, 
I'm going to look. So I actually applied for my training job as a pathologist to learn to train up to be a pathologist from the boat. Uh, and it was at Sydney University um, and um, sort of didn't look back, basically. Uh, and and it was from that point. So that was 2011. So 2011 is when I arrived in Australia and started my pathology journey. Mm. And I know what you said, you did that groundbreaking research around the link between um, domestic violence and pets. I was hoping mm. you could kind of go into some of that research. It started coming back to when... Um, I talked about being in the RSPCA shelter as like 11, 12 years old, that my ish, uh, my sort of passionate interest in those animals and their stories was kind of started. And then as a student, when I was a, um, a vet student um, in the UK, I decided in my from my sixth year, my final year project, we had to do just choose an elective. So you could just go and spend a few weeks in um, one of the departments and do a bit of a project at uni. But I decided I really wanted to go to the, spend some time at the RSPCA and do a research project looking at um, what were the pathologies or the features of animals that have been injured by abuse um, because that science is, wasn't there, hasn't really been there. There'd been a couple of, um, there'd been a, um, an author called Munro who did a groundbreaking piece of work about five or six years earlier who'd looked at what, who asked vets what they had seen in terms of um, abuse or highly suspected abuse cases in veterinary practice. So we knew it was much more there than it, people were acknowledging. But there hadn't been any work that had been done um, that actually looked at, like, what are the ways that you can diagnose abuse, what kind of injuries are highly likely to be abuse injuries and what aren't. Um, because that that work had been done in people in about the 1960s or had started being done. And here we were in vet medicine way behind. Um, but uh, as a student, I thought, oh, let me see if I can do that. And actually what was really um, neat in the end and very much supported by RSPCA and actually a Dogs Trust, which is another big welfare organisation in, in the UK, also supported the research as well. And um, I was able to go back and find a number of cases. I think it was about 20 cases that I had in the prior two years that were in the RSP, had gone through the RSPCA hospital that were absolutely confirmed abuse cases and where those animals had sustained fractures and um, compared those to all the other fractures that had a occurred in, in dogs, so this is all dogs, occurred in dogs that had come to the hospital in that same time frame but had had accidents and then said, what, what are the ways in which these fractures differ? So how can a vet look at um, a fracture pattern in, in a dog and say this is, correlates with an abuse injury or not? And actually there were a number of ways in which um, abuse fractures in dogs can... Um, raise your index of suspicion as a, as a vet in practice. So having multiple fractures, having fractures on um, more than one side of the body um, is suspicious, highly suspicious for abuse. Having fractures that are old by the time they, like, or, you know, from many days to weeks old by the, by the time they eventually get to the vet, um, even more so if they have fractures that are of two different ages. So when you x-ray a, a fracture, you can get a pretty good idea of not specific, but a good idea of how, how old that fracture is. Um, and then um, the shape of the fracture. So fractures that were straight through the bone were more likely to um, occur in abuse. And, and that's interesting because that's kind of consistent with a, a focal blow to the leg, whereas like being hit by a car, which is a common cause of fractures, accidental fracture in animals, 
um, they tend to cause much more kind of complex or spirally or, or what we call diagonal, like oblique fractures. So that was really, that was like hugely rewarding for me. Um, and I remember quite vividly receiving a, it was an email or a call from someone who was investigating an abuse case in, in Boston in the US, um, not that long after that work was published. And saying, oh, we've got this case, I think it was a dog maybe that had been buried and recovered and there'd been an um, accusation or a charge of abuse. And they'd been, they'd used my five indicators and they'd found that I think four out of five of them matched and that was going to be used in that case to actually, as a, as a presentation of evidence um, for that case. And so that was quite meaningful for me to kind of... Um, see that it was being used in that way. I mean, it's for me, it's just always about, and the same in all of my pathology and especially forensic work, it's being about being able to bring more fact and evidence into all of these discussions. What became more evident to me was how, um, you know, animal abuse doesn't occur in a vacuum. We have this kind of, and I had it as well, this understanding of animal abusers as being kind of the, you know, it's the precursor to being a serial murderer. It's these really psychopathic twisted minds that do these things and it's a rarity but the reality is as I think the whole society is becoming more aware now is that violence against vulnerable individuals um, particularly in homes is um, sadly really common and when I say vulnerable individuals that might be a, a violent person's partner or um, children in their lives and that extends to animals and um, and it appears to be often the same perpetrators. So um, I, as I became more aware of this, I also became aware that there was not, well, again, like often in, in the veterinary world um, and in forensics and wildlife too, like, the, you know, we've got a, there's lots of gaps in our research. I mean, there's no, it's no surprise in the human medicine side, they've got one species to deal with. We've got, I don't know, 400,000 or so. so. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we're, we're, we're coming up behind, you know, we, we only, vets only started as a thing in, in the 18th century, so we've got a bit of catching up to do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so um, the main problem, I think, is that vets are not trained, um, not given an, an, as much training as we could, partly because we don't have as, enough science yet, we need more of that, but also that... Um, we don't have um, as much built-in protection for um, vets who, who are worried about abuse and want to report. My fiancé is an uh, emergency physician for humans and um, I call him a human doctor. Mm -hmm. He's human. Mm. And so we are quite... Um, we always find it really interesting to compare and contrast our worlds, our professional worlds. And, you know, he talks about when he has cases of, say, children that, that come in and where... They might doctors might have a suspicion, but what's been done on the human side is that it's all man like it's mandatory. The reporting is mandatory, but but also they have a they have a, a complete framework and they're completely protected professionally um, when they have to go down that route. So all that happens if you have a child that has I don't know a particular fracture, say that is considered a bit concerning for doctors. They go look, uh, you know, hi, I'm really you know. I've, 
apologise. Um, it's required by law. Like if whenever I see a fracture like this, I just have to ask you these series of questions. I have to do this and that and, and you go through it. And that is just the way it is. And for vets, yeah, we don't, we haven't got that in place and I, I hope it will come. And I want to talk about, um, I guess Australians are known for being obsessed with true crime and mm-hmm. everyone knows the lead investigators of these big cases. So I wanted to go into one of your, I guess, bigger cases. Um, mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. that after the Greyhound ban was brought in, you mm-hmm. were the uh, one of the lead investigators on, um, you know, mm. finding out whether or not um, one of the mass graves in mm. the Hunter Valley were, you know, basically uh, how did the greyhounds die? Um, and that had like an immense amount of public pressure and everyone <laughs> wanting to, you know, uh, and I know that there had been, I guess, previous investigations that, mm. you know, there was lots of misleading information going around. Mm. So I guess how do you go into an investigation like that with mm-hmm. um, an immense amount of public pressure? That particular case, so... The, the final report, just to start at the end, the final report came out about the same week or just after the ban came in. So just as we were about to report, um, that's when that big political decision was made. Um, so we were kind of working in the year before that as things were hotting up, but, but certainly we weren't necessarily... That was quite a surprise, I think, to everyone who, well, any everyone <laughs> in the state that that was not necessarily seen coming. Um, so dealing with that at the end was interesting. I can kind of come back to that. But that case, um, yeah, it, it was, it's obviously contentious. It was on a property that was a an active um, greyhound industry property. But the, the people who live there were, in fact, they were the ones that had originally pushed for the investigation. So that made a big difference because we could work on site with, like, comfortably. Um, but big, the big things that made a difference for me was the team I worked with. So it was a small team. Um, I was the only uh, sort of veterinary person. The three others were um, the, the senior counsel that was running the investigation and two um, private investigators. The three of them actually had been detectives, um, trained as detectives in the 70s and and so immensely experienced um, and had so much wisdom. So there I was, you know, coming in and that was my first big forensic project like this and um, they they went a long way to kind of really helping guide me with some of those pressures. Like the position I always take with and have since with pressure in those... um, forensic cases, whether especially where there's any form of like public awareness before the fact, is just to, you just have to blank it out, um, especially for me as the, you know, I'm the, the sort of the scientific person coming and trying to establish the evidence. And so I have to be, and I, you know, am, and that's always my position is all I'm interested in is the physical facts about the, you know, what do I find in the ground here and, and focus on that and never... Um, never being tempted to be involved in any way in in any form of me, sort of media when, when that stuff's going on because it doesn't – it can be very – obviously it might be interesting or informative, but, but ultimately most of these projects are ultimately the, – the facts come out in the end and it, it's better, I find, to let those facts speak for themselves. It was really quite fascinating and I had to as, – as I've learned and as is really important in any kind of forensic work, you have to – know what your expertise is and know the limits of that. So I um, got a team on board that was a forensic anthropologist and a forensic archaeologist. So 
getting them, being able to get them on board to assist with how you manage a site like that. We had multiple places to dig and to search. We had a pl- one place where we knew we had remains and we had a whole property, like a large, I can't remember how many acres, but maybe at least 100. Other places where um, we need, we could look and we found more remains. Um, so their expertise was just completely... Um, invaluable yeah mm. and it's almost like you've done all these um i guess um the, all these different cases that have been more and more large scale and now mm. your current project at taronga is probably of the largest scale which is taking on the illegal wildlife trade <laughs> so yeah. take me into kind of your work on that here at taronga it's kind of a perfect knitting of of kind of my two areas of, of passion so working you know with wildlife pathology and also on the forensic side um but it certainly wasn't just like you know not me alone. It require it's required in a team um, from Taronga of um, a conservation biologist who's really led this project, Phoebe Ma, and our nutritionist Michelle Shaw, and um, and as well as several other uh, external team members. Taronga has become increasingly involved and passionate about tackling now what is the second greatest, um, if not in for some species, the greatest threat to species survival, which is the illegal trade. And we became aware of it. Um, in fact, Cam RCO was talking to us about the problem with echidnas being illegally traded out um, and, and laundered, what gets called laundered, like money laundering, but wildlife laundering, where you basically um, fraudulently certify that an animal has been um, legally bred and then send it overseas illegally. And this gets done with a kidna. We know this happens um, because uh, in Indonesia they have certification export licenses to export 50 a kidna a year um, as long as they are captive bred, second generation, so that they, um, their parents also captive bred. And But we know um, from international knowledge and records that in 100 years, there's fewer than 50 echidna have ever been successfully bred in captivity to breeding age. They're just incredibly hard. To, they obviously breed very well in the wild because short-beat echidnas are doing great um, and have done. They've been going for 160 million years. They're just amazing. They're doing Dinosaurs. all right. Yeah, yeah. They're on a side note, echidnas are amazing. Like they're half reptile, half bird, half mammal. I know that's three halves, but um, they're just, yeah, they're incredible. Side note. But so... Um, we basically became aware of this problem. We thought, oh, and Phoebe Ma and myself and with Michelle, we're sort of having a discussion like surely, like we're in such a unique position here at the zoo, particularly in pathology. Like we have, um, I, I do postmortems on about 1,200 wild, wild species, like non-domestic species a year, of which a proportion is zoo population animals, but lots are, are external wildlife coming in, either they're animals that have come in for rehabilitation and, and sadly don't make it or even other external wildlife postmortems that I receive. And what a unique situation to have access to um, animal samples that could be used to help develop testing. Um, You know, we've got animals that come from known backgrounds and unknown backgrounds, um, and all of the samples we can collect without harming an animal because they're all, it's all kind of what we call opportunistic samples, so animals that have already died for another reason. Uh, we always want to use every single bit of that animal to for some purpose that we can. Like that's kind of my bit like they say about the, um, you know, using every part of the mammoth that, that people used to do. Like you make sure that you use every single bit a bit. 
Um, so, so we just said, surely we can tackle this. And, and um, again, like a, a, a synergistic thing, Phoebe was at a, a conference where she heard this bird ecologist speaking um, called Kate Brandis. She's at UNSW. And she um, had developed this really neat citizen science project called um, the Feather Map, where she wanted to know to try and track where um, water birds were migrating across Australia by collecting feathers. And what she wanted to be able to do is is do a special analysis of the feathers um, to determine um, how much of 24 different elements were in the feather, like at different places along that feather. And um, and she had decided to do this using a completely novel method that had never been used on biological samples before. It was a science, a nuclear science tool that had been developed to help basically geologists or miners work out what um, elements were in a geological core. Like you drill down, pull out a long kind of core of rock and then you analyse it. And she said, well, Dana, I'm going to use this on feathers. Um, and she did and it was working for mapping feathers around Australia. So then in theory, what, what she could do is you go to one waterhole, scan a feather and you go, right, this feather matches... Um, feathers that have been grown at this other waterhole across the country. So that bird must have grown that feather there, flown to this waterhole and then dropped it. So really, really clever science. And Phoebe said to her at this conference, oh, my gosh, can, can we talk? Because I've got this idea. Could we? Do you think we could use this to try and identify where other animals have um, grown their feathers or any kind of keratin spikes or scales? Because we want to be able to test where... Um, where an animals come from so that we can determine, you know, whether it was captive bred or wild or taken from the wrong national park or all these sorts of things. Just find out where traders are getting their animals from is just like a basic thing that needs to be done to try and tackle the, the illegal trade. Um, and Kate said, I, I reckon we can. And sure enough, um, so we did a, a study on, a, like a pilot study on echidna and with especially with that machine learning technique that um that's a part of the science that goes way over my head but i'm told <laughs> by the experts that you know it can get, it can actually it could predict then we we sort of trained the machine to read um the data points so the 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 scanner would read about 2 2 or 300 points down the echidna quill and at each point it would read where um, the amount of eight, of 24 elements at each of those points. So then we ended up with like 220,000 data points um, and, and the machine could take all that and predict by reading the quill whether that animal had been living wild or whether it had been in captivity. The neat thing about echidnas too, um, and with a lot of keratin, it depends. Bird feathers are grown in about a week, flight feathers in general, um, so it's re you're getting a snapshot in time, but echidna quills are gradually growing like our fingernails. So we had a, an echidna that had only been with us for a couple of years and we could see the point at which her quill had changed from being a captive quill wow. to, for a wild quill to a captive quill, which was really cool. Um, so now what we're doing with that, and that was that got published and um, works, and so we're now sort of... Now, sort of hugely hoping to hugely expand that by doing a couple of things. One is that the base thing we think needs to be done is to build a library, a reference library of keratin for lots of, you know, obviously targeting the highly trafficked species so that we can then 
scan all of those and in have... terms of just going back in terms of mm. australia what would you consider a highly trafficked species in terms of australian species probably the 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 biggest problem species um, for Australian trade at the moment are, are reptiles. So blue tongue lizards and the shingleback lizards are two of the um, really traffic animals. And we really sadly here at the zoo, we receive um, several times a year shipments of reptiles that have been found in the mail. So the um, border force or the mail exchange find these animals um, well, alive in theory, when they x-ray packages and things and they, they pick them up and they're brought in and they're shoved into these tiny holes and in socks and all sorts of dreadful things being sent out of the country. And so we'll rehabilitate um, the animals where, where we can. Sometimes they're dead even by the time they get here and then theoretically going off to Europe or the US or Asia or various places. Um, and the, the traders don't care because as long as they get a few, you know, th these animals, they can nick them from the wild and make, make a lot of money doing that, even if only a few survive. We've had pregnant ones die and then they give birth. Well, pregnant ones give birth and then their babies never survive when they've given birth after all that stress. So it's pretty it's pretty awful. Um, so those two species are big ones, but also um, parrot species um, are an issue as well. So we're in discussions with um, and hoping that um, we're going to be able to support the government in developing some tests for them. Um, so that they can actually use them on the front line. That's the really neat thing about doing science here is that uh, here at Taronga is that because we're not we're not formally an academic institution and we're not you know we're not for profit. It means that we can focus our science on actual real world like problems and be just wanting to like all we really want is to be able to develop that test. We want to develop that that reference library and target species. We've got six um, six target species. Um, Plus, uh, we're, as well as the Australian branch, we've also got samples that Phoebe collected over in, in the island of Palawan in the Philippines with three critically endangered species. So the Philippine pangolin, so pangolin being the most trafficked mammal on earth, being just decimated by desire for scales in particular. Um, and they're also one of our legacy species for our tenure. We're committed to helping um, the conservation of 10 species in particular, and pangolin's one of those. And then also the Philippine cockatoo and the Palawan forest turtle. And what we're really interested in that study is, um, so the, the Palawan forest turtle, they only live on one island and they only have a few water holes where they're still living. And we think we can actually pinpoint which water hole that they've come from by doing that science. And um, and with the pangolin, no trade of pangolin is, is legal. So we're not trying to work out if a pangolin scale is legal or not because they're always illegal but it, we think it's going to help us identify where the scales have come from because often, well, sometimes it's just the animals found in bags, but sometimes it's just tons of scales, like tons and tons of scales. It's just mind-boggling. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited about that. And the next phase, um, so the machines that we've originally done the research on are based out at ANSTO, Australian Science Nuclear Technology Organisation. Um, they're kind of big, you know, you go into the big official labs. But what's really cool is that the science has been miniaturised down to handheld machines. And so what we're, our vision is now that, that we'll be able to have border uh, authorities scanning animals and it's completely non-destructive, it's completely non-invasive. It wouldn't, you know, I'd scan myself um, in a second, millions of times, <laughs> find out where I've been hanging out, um, <laughs> scan myself. Uh, and, yeah, so we could just literally scan, we think, um, 
at Echidna, a lizard, and and immediately that bounces up to our cloud reference library and says this animal is from X or Y or wild or captive court, uh, captive bred, and they can make it an enforcement decision on the spot or at least have enough information to say I'm holding up this trade. Okay, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for like 400 hours, but I also <laughs> feel like I'm keeping you from really important work. Oh. <laughs> so thank you so much for hanging out with me today, Lydia. Oh, I really appreciate oh, it. I've enjoyed it. You know, I, as you can tell, I can talk for hours. <laughs> talk the hind leg of a donkey and it. then dissect it. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for having Thanks. me. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Lydia Tong. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.